Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times, occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University at Indianapolis. I'm on Twitter at Nicholas Terry, N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y. So, dear listener, we all find ourselves in a bit of a pickle at the moment. And although uh, regular Twill content will keep coming, uh, I have a show scheduled for this weekend next. I'm also opening up the Twill platform to other folks who are generating worthy content. I am part of a group, a very small part of a group called the George Consortium, which is a sort of loose affiliation of people who do public health law health law policy and so on. The George Consortium, uh, which is based out of Public Health Watch at Northeastern University Law School, the Center for Public Health Law Research uh, based out of Temple University, have led the charge here uh, to create new and innovative content on almost a daily basis. The leading lights of this are our good friends Scott Burris at Temple, Wendy Palmet at Northeastern and Lance Gable at Wayne State University. In addition to the regular live broadcasts through Periscope on Twitter, we will also be archiving the content produced there as twills. For listeners who need to be able to differentiate between the regular twills and these emergency twills, if you like, I will put the word George in the title of each of these special episodes so you'll be able to figure it out. Uh, please do join us on a regular basis on Twitter. The hashtag is COVID Law Briefing, COVID Law Briefing. And you can also find out more information about the whole project, uh, additional links and so on at publichealthwatch.org. Because we're going to document so much there, uh, show notes will be reduced on the Twill site just to links over to Public Health Law Watch, uh, at least for the George episodes. Anyway, the promise of this is remarkable. Things are changing on a daily basis. Sometimes the audio isn't going to be as good as perhaps you've got used to, but um, uh, I hope this is something that will be truly informative um, and uh, help you through these difficult times. Uh, Often you won't even hear my voice on these things, uh, but uh, please enjoy and please give us uh, feedback to that hashtag or to any of our Twitter addresses. Keep safe. Um, Welcome to Public Health Law Watch's COVID Law Briefing. I'm Scott Burris, a professor at Temple University Beasy School of Law, um, and we are here with a group of experts to give you uh, some expert legal analysis on the hot issues of the COVID outbreak, um, and we're going to be doing that at noon every Tuesday and Thursday. This is brought to you by the George Consortium, which is a group of over 60 very, very prominent and, and, and intelligent public health law economic academics and professionals who are uh, joined together to promote strong, fair, and effective public health action generally, and certainly in the case of COVID. Uh, Public Health Law Watch is an initiative of the George Consortium. It seeks to tap the power of scholars, lawyers, experts, and practitioners to promote sound public health policy and law. It's housed at the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University School of Law, and we really thank um, Wendy Parmet and Leah Boletsky and the staff at the Center for taking on the job of of getting this organized and out to all of you. You particularly 
particularly want to thank Faith Kalik from Public Health Law Watch and Bethany Saxon from my Center for Public Health Law Research for their work in taking us from the idea of a briefing to the uh, tweet storm you are going to be part of right now. Uh, our first topic is the legal issues of COVID-19 uh, arising for prisons and jails. And we're very happy to have Leo Boletsky, a uh, professor at Northeastern University School of Law and the head of the Health in Action Justice Lab to talk to us for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes about what's going on, and then to answer your questions from the Twitter thread as they uh, as they arise. So you can just put your questions right into the thread, um, or uh, go ahead and write to at um, COVID-19, and we will pick those questions up and be ready to answer them. Uh, so let me welcome Leo Boletsky. Thank you so much, Scott, and uh, I'm excited for our inaugural, uh, inaugural briefing. So what's happening with prisons and jails right now? What are the big issues with COVID-19 that, that they're concerned about? Prisons and jails uh, have, and other detention settings, uh, have forever served as an incubator of infection. So uh, we saw that with influenza, we saw that with uh, tuberculosis, with HIV, with hepatitis, and and COVID-19 is certainly no different. You know, people say that epidemics um, thrive on sort of societal fault lines, and uh, prisons and jails are uh, in many ways kind of um, uh, in uh, one of the representations of um, how we treat the most vulnerable people in our society. So, uh, you know, you have both crowded conditions and you also have folks with uh, sort of elevated uh, levels of risk factors. So in that context, there's a pretty urgent imperative to depopulate or decarcerate these settings in order to prevent uh, very rapid spread of disease. And so that's um, that's why we're, we've seen so many calls to do that quickly. All right. So we've got a lot of hundreds of thousands of people in tightly concentrated settings, many of whom are older or immunocompromised. <clears throat> we have guards going back and forth, bringing in what's outside and taking back what's inside to the outside. And now people are saying, we, you know, we've got to get fewer people in prisons and do something to protect those people. So what exactly are they suggesting we do? What does it mean to decarcerate? Um, what, what are the things they should be doing in prison? Rapidly releasing people who can be and should be released um, in that's that's kind of the crux of the policy and the legal debate is how do we identify people who uh, need to be and can be released and um, how do we you know what are the logistics of doing that well who's supposed to do that how, how does that happen legal that people get out well right so the question is you know these people are at least some of them have been convicted of crimes other one, other folks are not convicted of crimes so people can be detained pre-trial or because of you know technical violations violations. There is also obviously uh, immigration detention and other kind of detention settings. And so is it legal to let those folks out? And the, the answer is an emphatic yes. So there are a number of legal mechanisms. So there's kind of two major sources of, of law, I guess. Uh, one is enforcement discretion. So you have various actors within the criminal legal system who can exercise the discretion to both stop the flow of people into the system and also release people who are already there. You have a variety of mechanisms like commutation, power, pardons, and so forth. So that's, you know, that's one
one mechanism. And then one uh, another mechanism is statutory. So it turns out that there's little known areas of um, criminal law that date back to epidemics of the past that essentially empower and, and codify this, this decision-making power to say that governors and other um, actors within the system can depopulate uh, criminal justice set, uh, detention settings at times of pandemics to re- uh, reduce the spread of infectious disease. So so governors, they can just commute people. Judges could just decide not to incarcerate people or even prosecutors and police can decide not to get people into the system. Right. Are there lawsuits going on where those people are not doing what they're supposed to do? Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, the action has been slow, I guess, which, you know, again, goes to my to my point about the uh, prison and, and jails being kind of a microcosm of our society at large in the same way that our response to the to the epidemic has been uh, pretty sluggish. The response of the criminal legal system has been pretty sluggish. And so you have sort of action at the margins. So a few people being released here and there, but the kind of um, rapid and massive decarceration that's necessary to protect both people behind bars and, as you mentioned, the staff, which is very important, uh, that hasn't happened. And so there are lawsuits going on. So uh, just for example, in Massachusetts, the ACLU filed an emergency motion a few days ago with the Supreme Judicial Court to nudge action from from the governor and from uh, key leaders. And there's uh, actually hearing by phone um, that's happening this week. So we'll see we'll see what happens. And this is happening all over the country. So uh, defense counsel are filing motions for specific clients, as well as there's kind of impact, you know, population level efforts as well. So uh, clearly, uh, both inmates and the staff of prisons must be scared. And I guess there's also some potential legal action from staff members as a labor law matter. Well, that's interesting. I have actually not seen that, and it's it's been it's been interesting to see that the the corrections officers unions and the police unions. Um, you know, just to be clear, you know, these are the folks who are at very high risk because they're constantly interfacing with with individuals behind bars. They're you know actually taking people from being arrested, being in a courts, transferring them between facilities. And so they're, they're extremely high risk, though. But but interestingly, those those labor organizations have not actually come out in support of massive decarceration, which is uh, in some ways true to form for these organizations, because they typically are opposed to, you know, any kind of or most sort of, you know, decarceral efforts and well, and reforms. And so, they, so governors are seeing this stuff happening. What about governor's emergency power? I mean, does that broad authority extend to making rules about prisons and emptying prisons and drawing on some of those old statutes? Should we be expecting more action from governors? We should, but we're not seeing it. And then unfortunately, you know, people have been talking about this for several weeks now, and, and it's getting to a point where it may be too late to prevent major harm because you see, you know, the situation at Rikers, for example, in New York, is that there are now almost 200 confirmed cases. And, you know, just to be clear, these are just the cases where, you know, folks have gotten sick and have been tested. So it's it's just a tip of the iceberg. And just to, just to note, there's almost an, a 
identical number of guards who've gotten sick. So you have that situation. And of course, you know, people from prison do re-enter the community at some point, but but the staff re-enters the community every single day. So we're putting, by failing to address this problem, we're putting both the staff, the folks behind bars and their families and their communities, because by, you know, returning, returning every day from the place of high infection seeds the community with potentially seeds the community with infection. So this sounds actually really, really dangerous and a huge mess and moving too slowly. So tell us what we should look for, what, what we in the law community and the press and the public should be looking at in the next week or two, uh, where are the, the stories and the problems going to rise up? Well, I think, unfortunately, you're going to see in the same way that we've seen in society writ large, uh, action be reactive rather than proactive. And so what I'm uh, envisioning is that as more people get sick, the system will actually try to shed those folks, um, you know, and, and try to decarcerate quickly as as people have been urging, but doing it too late where, you know, people may already have been exposed. And my concern is that we don't have adequate uh, reentry measures and policies in place. So uh, reentry is a difficult and, and risky from a health perspective process, even in the best of times. Right now, when services are shuttered and systems are not really working, people who have been exposed or who are at risk of being exposed or returning into the community may find uh, few, few support systems. And so uh, this is something that I think needs to happen and ramp up very quickly if we can prevent if if we can prevent those folks from from getting uh, sick and from experiencing other health events, adverse events such as overdose, for example. We know that overdose risk is very high upon return from incarceration, and so we need to both make continue pushing for decarceration to prevent the spread of infection, but also double, triple, quadruple down on efforts to uh, improve reentry support for those individuals. All right, so I'm really scared now. Um, it feels like we've got this brewing crisis of transmission from prisons into the community and from the community into prisons. Um, I also understand as a lawyer that prisoners have an Eighth Amendment constitutional right to proper health care. And I don't think I've heard Governor Cuomo or other governors talking about the lack of ventilators in prison hospitals or talking about how um, big outbreaks in prisons are going to affect surge capacity um, yeah. in local hospitals. Well, and I mean, obviously, a lot of our prisoners are out in the country, so they're not, yes. you know, they're in rural hospital areas. Yeah, I mean, this is a complex. So, so yes, you're right. You know, there's a, a long line of, of Eighth Amendment jurisprudence, including Farmer v. Brennan, the 1993 uh, Supreme Court case that that's supposed to guarantee, you know, adequate health care for prisoners and preventative measures to, to avert uh, foreseeable harm. So there's no doubt that, you know, the legal underpinning is there, including, you know, this, this jurisprudence as well as the statutory underpinnings, but it's just the action is not happening uh, quickly enough. I don't know if it's for political reasons, you know, people just uh, being concerned about rapid decarceration and sort of how it will be perceived by the public, uh, you know, uh, maybe just bureaucratic sluggishness. But whatever the reasons, prisons do not, and prisons and jails do not have the capacity. I mean, the best hospitals that we have in the country, like the hospitals in New York City, are struggling to uh, to cope. And we're just seeing the beginning of the surge in hospitalization. It, it is, as far as I know, Rikers, you know, 
know, again, using the example of New York, which is now the epicenter, uh, but certainly not unique. There's, you know, this is going to slam, you know, many jurisdictions. Uh, Rikers does not have any ventilators in its infectious disease unit. So, so what you're going to see is increasing number of vulnerable folks being transported in crisis from correctional settings into community hospital settings, um, contributing to the overload of those hospital settings. And the correctional health is paid for by the taxpayer. Uh, it comes out of the corrections budget. And so, you know, with the COVID-19, there may be some additional funding available. But I guess what I'm getting at is we not only are we all, you know, sort of uh, potentially suffering the infectious disease consequences of this, but the financial consequences and the community capacity consequences are dire. So, Leo, you know, you've got, um, you know, two more minutes. Continue that thought and sum up on, on yeah, what so, we're so, um, we I think that the bottom line here is that action needs to happen very quickly. Um, there's no no more time to waste. Uh, we have to make sure that this authority is being is being utilized in the way that it was meant to be, and that we increase reentry support for these vulnerable individuals. And also, I, I think it's a, it's a moment of reflection as well as, you know, in many other areas for the way that we normally conduct business. And the fact that, you know, the first person who died in the federal system uh, was someone who was incarcerated, uh, who had served 27 years for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute. And so, you know, uh, the average age of people in the prison system in many jurisdictions is way over 50. So essentially, you know, we have nursing homes behind bars. That's that's something that is, uh, you know, served no public policy purpose and is, you know, just a uh, tinderbox for uh, situations like this. Well, thanks so much, Leo. We will have uh, some additional materials on this on the basic legal information on the Public Health Law Watch website, publichealthlawwatch.org. And um, a lot of this material, including the videos, will be available in there and potentially in other formats. So please follow up there if you need any more information.